Night has fallen. Dun, dun, dun. As the Trojans set their watch, the Achaeans are distraught and panicked. King Agamemnon despairs and tells his men to sail home. After a long silence, Diomedes tells Agamemnon to sail away, but Diomedes and company will stay and fight until the fixed doom of Troy occurs. Don't worry, old Nestor is going to come back and help N- everybody. Nestor, the old Achaean war chief, exhorts Agamemnon to have the night sentries take their posts and to throw a feast of grand hospitality for his senior chieftains. Agamemnon obeys, and at the feast, Nestor appeals to Agamemnon to make peace with Achilles. The high chieftain again follows Nestor's lead. He sends Odysseus, Ajax, and Phoenix, and a couple heralds, with a promise that Agamemnon will return Briseis to Achilles, along with hordes of treasure and more treasure to come when Troy falls. Mm-hmm. The embassy finds Achilles playing the lyre by his ships. Achilles greets them warmly, and each member of the delegation attempts to convince Achilles to return to the war and save the Argives. But Achilles still harbors an undying rage against Agamemnon, stating, I hate that man like the very gates of death. Agamemnon has wounded the honor of Achilles, and no gifts can undo that fact. Achilles tells Odysseus that Agamemnon can keep and enjoy Briseis. The heart of Achilles still heaves with rage, and he will not even think of arming for bloody war again until Hector has slaughtered the Argives all the way to his own ship. The embassy reports back to Agamemnon, and as they were all struck dumb, Diomedes rallies the chieftains and tells Agamemnon to fight on the front lines tomorrow. The Achaeans, who are stirred by the speech, make their offerings to Zeus and go to sleep awaiting the dawn. Welcome to the Ascended Podcast, the great books podcast where we are going through Homer in a year, working through uh, the Iliad currently. We're almost halfway there. Almost. We see the end. Are we going to do something special for halfway? I think we should. I think so. Let's do that. Let's let's do something special for halfway, Mark. Uh, What is that? 12, book 12? Book 12. We'll do something special. Maybe we'll have some of the guys from our small group join us, kind of have a not just a recap on book 12, but maybe also just like a stop for a second, pause, what are the major themes that we're looking at, particularly for you guys who are first-time readers, like what are you tracking, what's your impression so far, how do you think it's going to end? I think that'd be useful. That's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, how are you doing? You, you're not in the state of mortal sin or anything right now currently, right? <laughs> you're a wonderful co-host, and I'm really glad I started this project with I you. Mean, I mean, I, I really care about <coughs> you know, the state of your, of your soul. I'm having a lot of allergies. Okay. So... Uh, Coffee here in the state of mortal sin. Yeah, I hope we have um, patience. I hope our readers or listeners have some patience. I did use that joke actually at mass. Um, the, the incense. Yeah, the incense joke. Mm-hmm. So I was in the back and we were waiting to process in, and uh, we have a, a police officer who's in the back, and she said something about the incense and how certain people cough and whatever, and how it bothers them and whatever. And I was like, "Well, you, do you know what to tell them, right?" She's like, "What?" I was like, "You only t- incense only makes you cough if you're in mortal sin." And she like really enjoyed it. She was saying she had never heard that before. And I was like, oh, again, that's just a joke. Don't actually tell them. Do not say Dean Garlic at the cathedral said, because then I will have some answers. I love jokes that people hear for the very first time that are normal, and I get to, I get to tell them, and I, right. I get to be the one to deliver them. We were in uh, up in New England not too long ago, and the people who picked us up and, to, and gave us a ride were just a joy to have because they were like little kids. You, like you, you tell them a joke, you tell them something, and mm-hmm. they were, they were, they were uh, engaged one hundred percent. Like my audience is typically really young kids mm-hmm. or really drunk guys. Like those <laughs> two, like that typically think I'm funny. Like if you've drank a lot or like you're young, that's man, good. That's why you get invited to the men's conferences. That's right. <laughs> yeah, which you should be on the lookout for because Adam Minahan and his. Other co-host, mm-hmm. right, David Niles for the Catholic Man Show, are often speakers at Catholic men's conferences around the country. Yeah. So anyway, um, good. So you're you're doing well. Uh, the book club's going well. 
doing really well right now. I think like it's been a lot of fun. We've added a couple of people. We've had we've had some some good additions. I think that's part of the flexibility of having a small group, right? We've had some guys that life happens and they can't come anymore, or they move, or they buy a home, or whatever it is they they do. Uh, some who just can't do the time commitment, and then we have others, right? Who really the really the way I think the group really refines itself is what ends up happening is some of the men really enjoy it. And they're getting a lot out of Ring the Iliad. They get out a lot of the fraternity coming together, good food and drink, like let's discuss a great book. And then what happens is they uh, become very evangelical about it. Mm-hmm. And they go off to someone who say, hey, I know someone who would actually really, really like this. Mm-hmm. And they bring those people in. A lot of times those people really make the group. Yeah. So we've had some some good additions kind of almost halfway through the Iliad. Um, yeah, I'm doing great. I took the family out to Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, went through some caverns and nice. saw some old battlefields um, mm. for the Civil War, things yeah. like that. Climbed a tower. It was interesting. They had like kind of memorials that the states had built like after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So it was good. I, I remember one particular moment of walking across, like there was a trail <clears throat> that, for whatever reason, had you walk across one of the giant battlefields. On the battlefields, they keep them. Uh, immaculate, right? So they're they're mowed. There's just it's just grass. It's, so you can kind of tell where the big battle f- battles were. Mm-hmm. And um, I was there with uh, some buddies that I went to Ave Maria with uh, back in the day. And now there's like you know three couples and there's twelve kids running around and it's just kind of beautiful to see how that works. But um, we're walking across this battlefield because that's how the path works. And it was just, I, that was the only moment of the trip that I really had like a real spiritual moment because you're like looking at all these memorials and all these men that died. We're also reading the Iliad and about this piety and the generations that come before us and having that gratitude. So we, I actually led everyone in a prayer, you know, for the dead as mm-hmm. we walked across this field. Um, and it was really memorable for me. Um, I'm not sure how much it impacted any of the others, but it was very uh, impactful for myself. And then other than that, my house right now is filled with um, chicks. <coughs> wow. Excuse I me. I know you were a chicken. Don't, don't, never mind. I should have said chickens. Sorry. I just knew that your eyes lit up. And <laughs> yeah, I sent a picture the other day. It's the second time I've fallen into that. I sent a picture the other day, actually, to one of those guys that I went on the trip with. I was like, hey, look what we got. And it was a bunch of little chickens underneath a heat lamp, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what we have them. Right now, we've got nine or 10, uh, some lavender Orpingtons and so a few other breeds that we're, that we're raising. And yeah, he immediately fired back and he's like, Deacon sharing pictures of hot chicks. And I was just like, I don't, uh, okay. Anyway, I'm actually interested in the chickens. So we have uh, chickens and we have nine, no, seven little ducklings too, little mm. khaki Campbells that nice. we're going to try out and see how that works. So that's a good update for the garlic household. Nice. Awesome. Well, let's, let's jump into book nine. Nine, nine is, is, is long, is long. It seems like, again, first time reading this, but it seems like we go... Longer book, shorter book. Longer book, shorter book. Yeah. Um, so we're going into book nine, the embassy to Achilles, right? As we kind of opened up with our it's narrative. It's not too long. I mean, it's it's under nine hundred lines. I thought that's pretty good. I, I felt like it was a little longer, but no, I think anything going over about seven eight hundred tends to get pretty long. So yeah, so let's look at the embassy to Achilles. So we see it opens up with Agamemnon, um, basically, he's lost hope, right? Yeah, so the, look the around. The man is in despair. Like, he's just spiraling right now. He is spiraling. So if you look around line 20, right, Kronos' son, again, Zeus, has entangled being madness, blighting ruin. Zeus is harsh, a cruel god. He vowed to be long ago. He bowed his head that I should never embark from home till I had brought the walls of Ilium crashing down. But now I see he only plotted bl- brutal treachery. And you skip a few lines, down by 30, Cut and run. Sail home to the fatherland we love. We'll never take the broad streets of Troy. Again, reading from the Fagel's edition, which we would recommend. Yeah, so I think this is really interesting that Agamemnon, he just seems like he has such poor timing at times as a king. Mm-hmm. And there's times where he, like, he does what you expect a king to do. And then other times, so you're like, oh good, he's getting this role of king. And then other times you're like, what the heck are you doing, man? Like, uh, right. <clears throat> how are you even? How are you even able to get up and tie your laces in your weird <laughs> shoes in right. the morning? Whatever shoes you wear, how yeah, do you put them on? Yeah, I don't even know, understand because you know, the, obviously, like book one, asserting his, you know, trying to assert his primacy over over Achilles, and then book two, like testing the army's uh, morale. 
Yeah, and I think, no, that's a great tethering, because I think this, that when I read this, that's what this really reminded me of, like, we have seen this language before, right? So I, I think that you can make, um, as you did, a good connection between, I think, all the way back to the beginning of the Iliad, when he tests the men, mm-hmm. right? He actually says something very similar to this, right? I thought Zeus told me this, it was actually treachery, you know, we all need to sail home. Mm-hmm. There it was a test. Right. And here I would say it's not, right? He actually has fallen into despair, um, and I think it, that it still blows my mind that people are falling in despair as they're approaching the tenth year, as it is like coming to fruition. Like we know, tenth year. This is this is when it all comes down, and how much despair he has months out. Like I, I just don't. That was yeah. very shocking to me. Maybe I haven't thought this through, but maybe just like a defense of Agamemnon. Um, you know, I mean, every time they're pushed back, they they see their comrades slaughtered, right? I think that's mm-hmm. having an emotional effect on them. Yeah, I mean... Also, the gods, yes, Zeus... Yes, Zeus, once he gives his nod, remember if we thought earlier when we saw him give his nod to Thetis, mm-hmm. the nod itself, right, the divine... The, the acquiescence of the divine will actually has, like, a physical ramification, right? There were, like, shockwaves that went out mm-hmm. under the understanding that Zeus cannot change his will once he makes a choice. However, I would say that what I'm always kind of looking at when they say, Zeus promised me this, mm-hmm. is there's what Zeus says, and then there's how the human interprets it. Mm-hmm. And those two things, you know, there can be a whole world between those two things. I mean, like King Agamemnon even says in here, like how, he, how Zeus has plotted brutal treachery on him. Right. So he's even backing out of the idea of that Agamemnon can say something and has to follow through with it, that... You mean Zeus? Or, I'm sorry, yeah, that Zeus has yeah. to say something and follows through with it, like that he... Just straight up lying. Just straight up lying. Yeah. So he falls into despair. Uh, we'll see him kind of pick himself up by his bootstraps a little bit here, but Diomedes kicks in, as we mentioned the opening narrative, and as we, obviously, if you want to go back and look at the narrative, uh, that's all that's read directly from our guide, right? Each chapter opens Highly up. Highly recommend it. It's, it. it is uh, the way to go when you're reading this, especially with the group. But did you feel like that it was very unfitting for Diomedes to kind of call the king out in this way. Like, so in a, in a previous, or in an upcoming book, I can't remember, but they're talking about how Hector, like the people is trying to glorify, their actions are trying to glorify the king, right? And his right. actions. And then you have Diomedes here on the other side, <clears throat> on, on, on the Trojan side, um, in front of everybody, basically call King Agamemnon a, a, a coward. And and so then Nestor says, uh, I think, he, am I reading in this? This is Adam's interpretation. Which is always going to be pro-Nestor. Always pro-Nestor. Pro-Nestor reading. Nestor senses this and senses right. the uh, impiety of Diomedes uh, and, and intervenes quickly uh, to kind of save Diomedes. What yeah, are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> well, th- to save Diomedes and maybe also to save Agamemnon, right? So Diomedes, yes, he comes on heavy, right? I'll be the first to oppose you in your folly. Uh, this is between 30 and 40. And then, <clears throat> you know, he didn't basically tells him, hey, listen, you sail away, my king. The sea lanes are clear. There are your ships for war crowded down the surf. Just go get on them. You know, thank you very much. But we'll stay here and fight out for Troy. So he, yeah, I agree. He has a very abrasive, like, here you go. It's hard to kind of track a little bit, like, what this, should this relationship be like? If you remember all the way back at the beginning, actually, when Agamemnon did the, the test, Odysseus, right, he made this connection that Zeus loves the kings. He rules the world through the kings, but they kind of share in the madness of Zeus, mm-hmm. right? That, that madness mm-hmm. kind of permeates into them. Mm-hmm. So it's hard at times to say, like, you know, is, he, is Diomedes really calling him back? I would say your boy Nestor jumps in, maybe not necessarily to save Diomedes, but to save Agamemnon, right? Because it says all the Achaeans shouted their assent. Mm-hmm. And then Nestor kind of gives him, you know, Diomedes gives this very black and white, like, hey, stay and fight or go home. And Nestor, right, gives him this, like, hey, here's a plan, right? right. Here's something you could adopt. And then at typical, like, everybody... Let's cool it. Let's let's throw a feast. Let's throw a party. Let's let's hang out for a little bit. Let's think this through. Yeah. So there's a good hospitality, right? Come bring, let's bring your your um, you know high chieftains together, uh, your senior chieftains together, and and talk about this. You know, Nestor really represents. I was thinking about this, um, kind of the primordial understanding that age equals wisdom. 
right? He's always tethered, you know, he's the link to the prior age when men are greater. We see that very explicitly here coming up. Um, this link that just like age equals wisdom, right? Everyone's always like, go ask Nestor what he thinks. So you're correct. So Nestor, I think his advice, right? He gives the king some practical advice. Let's do this. Let's do this. If I recall correctly, Agamemnon actually never assents it on 93 or so. It just says the troops hung on his words and then took his orders. Mm-hmm. So Agamemnon doesn't say no, but he just kind of goes along with it. Um, <clears throat> and then he does, like, towards after 100, it says Agamemnon marshaled his commanders, you know, and, and placed a feast, etc. In which then Nestor, right, he has set the, the tone, he set the stage. Mm-hmm. He has this feast, this hospitality. They're, they're rising, raising their spirits, and he pitches his idea. Right, king, you know, my illustrious king, mm-hmm. uh, you need to make peace with Achilles. Right, mm-hmm. give him back Briseis. If you remember, that's all the way back to, <coughs> excuse me, that was a slave girl mm-hmm. that he had that Agamemnon took because Agamemnon had to give his back because it was the daughter of a priest of Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. And Apollo had cast down a plague upon them. So give back Briseis. You know, say you're sorry, let's make amends. And Agamemnon, he, he consents, right? It's like 135 or so. He consents quickly. He says, mad, blind I was, not even. So here is what you're talking about earlier. Like, here's these kind of large emotional swings. Right. By, like, he's just a very uh, somewhat spirited man, right? Well, and I think that this actually shows that... So you have three speeches right in a row, right? Mm-hmm. You have Diomedes, and then you have Nestor, and then you have... Uh, bookend between those two is King Agamemnon. Right. And I think that these speeches are a little revealing of the characters mm-hmm. and who they are. Right? So you have the emotional swings of Agamemnon on either side. Either side of the spectrum is is is, is extreme on both sides. You have old boy Nestor who's constantly trying to reel everybody back in, remind people of like why we're here, what's the purpose, what are we doing. Right. And then you have Diomedes who sometimes you know, is very Achilles-esque in, in some of his speech. But mm-hmm. then he also is, like, can he's not Achilles-esque in some ways because he, like, rallies the troops behind it. It seems like the troops will, will rally behind him. Yeah, and we'll, we'll kind of see that in the next chapter because I think there's a good question in the next book is, um, what is Diomedes' role? <coughs> Excuse me. What's his role? Like, what's he, how's he can, like, how's he really tethered to Odysseus, right? Yeah. How, how can we see him, like, so here we typically just like kind of to piggyback on what you said, we typically have seen Diomedes as, you know, this man now that the Trojans fear even more than Achilles, right? right. Like he's slaughtering, he's doing all these things that, that, that magnificent passage where like he and, and uh, Athena are in the chariot and he spears just going uh, on like Ares. Yeah. And now here he is like giving advice, right? And actually this whole book, if I remember correctly, we'll see is bookended by the council of Diomedes, right? Mm-hmm. It is kind of, um, I think it's softened by Nestor, right? Nestor jumps yeah, in. I think so. He plays that role. And would you see another thing that's interesting at 140 when Agamemnon is, you know, kind of saying, yes, I'll do this, right? I was mad blind. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm bent on setting things right. He basically actually intuits what's happening. He says at 140, he says, why look, that man, Achilles, is worth an entire army. The fighter Zeus holds dear with all his heart how he exalts him now and mauls Achaia's forces. Mm-hmm. So he's actually intuiting here the promise to Thetis that he that he's seeing that Zeus is actually exalting Achilles through right the slaughter of the Argives, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I, I just thought was interesting. Yeah. So we get this. So then we shift into this long narrative about all the gifts that um, Achilles will get right. Probably most notable is he'll give back uh, Briseis. He's also swearing an oath, right, that he never had sexual relations with her, which is, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, um, you know, I think a big deal as far as, like, you know, giving her back and things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> he, and basically, I, I don't think we have to, like, go through all of this. Um, you know, part of it is he'll get it now. Part of it, he'll get it if Troy falls. That distinction, I think, is very important to remember later on. The other one is, is um, did anything stick out to you about, this is 170, that uh, one of the treasures that Achilles can get is a daughter of Agamemnon, and he can become the son-in-law 
of Agamemnon, the yeah, high king. That's always worked out whenever he <laughs> gives uh, his daughters away. Yeah. So if you remember all the way back, um, we kind of did a deep dive via some of the stuff on our guide, is that um, Agamemnon has already sacrificed one of his daughters, right? They, right. they were on the island and uh, Artemis, because you know someone had killed like you the tell, sacred you rabbit. Tell me how crazy and how <clears throat> nervous you are as a daughter when you hear, when you're, you get a little scroll and it, you open it up and it says, your father wants you to meet, to, to, get, to go get married off. And you know that your other sister... Right. Did this and she's she she'd be dead. Yeah. So he yeah, they killed the sacred hare, right? The the rabbit. Artemis won't let the winds blow the correct direction. And so they, they lure one of Agamemnon's daughters mm-hmm. by saying, Yeah, you'll be you'll get married to Achilles. So it's just kind of there's like kind of a, a tragic irony here that now though this for real this time, right. like you'll we won't kill her. Yeah, like, I'm not I'm not joking this time. Right. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> I have thoughts on this bounce or this uh, gifts that he's given all uh, to try to ma- to amends Achilles. Mm-hmm. My first take was this man sounds desperate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he opens up the book with despair. Uh, he he sounds desperate by giving everything plus the kitchen sink away to get Achilles back in the fight. And then the more I thought about it, then I said like, ah, you know what? I don't know if that's actually the case. I don't think that it's that he's trying to give everything away. Mm-hmm. To get him back, perhaps he's giving all these things or, or offering all these things, knowing good and well that Achilles has no desire really for any of these hmm. things, and knowing that now he can go off and tell his army and tell tell people who have fallen, like, look, I did everything I could as a king. I offered him everything, right? And he still told me no. So then, the sh- then the blame, everything would shift, would to, shift Achilles. to Achilles. And so, yeah, I, I go back and forth like as I was reading this not sure if it was out of desperation or if it was cunningness. Well, I think if we take his emotions at the beginning, right, to be authentic of like sail home, I quit. Right. Right. Then I, I think there has to be some level of desperation here. But then once he kind of, you know, lands on his own sword and says, you know, this is my fault, et cetera, all from all these things. Yeah. I mean, I it's, it's natural to kind of question like how authentic is he being? Mm-hmm. Also because we should know, how it ends. Right. Okay. So here, so remember I was telling you how terrible timing that King Agamemnon has. Right. Right. Like it seems like he just puts his foot in his mouth or he says like things that he shouldn't say. Like even if that's his intent, just don't Mm -hmm. say it in front of everybody. He gives all this whole list and then his ego kicks in and he basically says like, oh yeah, but he still has, he has to submit to me. You know, he still has, you know, Death submits to no one, so mortals hate him most of all the gods, but he's saying, like, but you still have to submit to me as king. Yeah, I am the elder born. This is a little after 190. I am the elder born. I claim the greater man. Right. So, again, terrible timing. Bro, even if you feel that way, just, mm-hmm. don't, just don't say that. It kills. So, so this is why I thought, like, oh, well, this is actually not him being cunning. This is, again, him being just... Like being a like he's obtuse. Stupid. Yeah, yeah, he's thick. He's obtuse. Yeah, I. It's that's. I mean, I think it's. I think it's a good instinct to question um, the incentives of these things, right? Like, do we just don't take them at face value? Push into it a bit. Like, where can we go? I think he is certainly desperate. Um, I took this as. I took this as you know. I, I had a similar instinct as you as like, wh- where is he actually on? Like, mm-hmm. what was he doing? Mm-hmm. I do find him to be desperate. I do find his thing to sail home to be authentic. I think that what he realizes is in some capacity... I don't think he has any interest in actually making amends with Achilles. Right. I think, given by his statement, he realizes, right? What has he, he already admitted? He's already admitted that he knows that Zeus is orchestrating this to give glory to Achilles. Mm-hmm. So I think he thinks that's like, listen, I will... You know, if I give all these treasures, if Fine, I do all good, this, but you still have to submit to me. right? Like, like let's just get past this. Like, I'll I'll give you all the stuff, and then you get the honor, and then you come back, and then Zeus allows my army to win, right? right? So I find it kind of more of a play, how do I placate Zeus? And like, okay, so if I've you know if I've acknowledged that Zeus is basically doing this to glorify Achilles, mm-hmm. okay, then I will just acquiesce and and try and glorify him to some just just you know degree. But then he does end with, by the way, I'm the elder born and the greater man. So again, I think Agamemnon's a conflicted uh, character. I don't think he's a flat character at all. All right. I think he does this. 
So we get the little, the embassy, right? The negotiators that are going to be sent off. So we get Ajax, Odysseus, and Phoenix, which is a character that I don't think we've been introduced to before. No. So we'll have to talk about who he is. And then a two heralds. Um, they say a prayer to Zeus and they, they march off. I love still <coughs> the, uh, the desire for, for the religious themes of everything that they're doing, even if mm-hmm. you know, this, these are pagans, but they still understand that uh, sacrifice and worship are, are linked. Yeah, and they, and they, yeah, everything starts with, um, you know, a prayer to Zeus, or I've always enjoyed, <coughs> excuse me, I've always enjoyed the libations, right? right. The, the liquid sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? So we pour a glass. I was actually, I met with someone today um, to discuss uh, Plato, and we're discussing the death of Socrates, mm-hmm. uh, right, who has to drink the hemlock. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, uh, Socrates asks while he's like the guard has given him the hemlock. His friends are all basically crying around him. Right. He actually chastises them like, "Hey, by the way, this is why I sent the women away. So like we would, we didn't all cry, right. and you guys are supposed to be my philosophers, and you're just sitting here like say weeping. weeping? Right. Meanwhile, he's the one dying, and he's like stoic about it, right? Because right. you know he doesn't believe that death should be feared, which is kind of a beautiful precursor to Christianity. But one of the things he asks is, "Can I give a libation mm-hmm. of his own cup?" Mm-hmm. That he will die from, right? right? He asks him like, "Hey, can I give a libate? Can I pour some of this out to Zeus?" And the guy's like, "Oh, well, that's that's actually a full dose, so you have to take it." But just like that instinct of right. like, I should give an offering, even of like you know the thing that will be the instrument of my death, right? Man is by nature religious. He is right. Religion is a natural virtue. Man naturally desires to give what is due to the divine, yep. and sometimes it shows up in dark and mysterious ways. But that instinct is there. <coughs> So they find Achilles, the embassy leaves, they go over finding him. I got some strong Nero vibes when I, I don't know if anyone else did. Mm-hmm. I got some strong Nero vibes when I read this passage because here they are, like the Argives are getting slaughtered, right? Their king is a mess, right? They're all over there trying to figure out what to do. Uh, keep in mind, like this is the night. So they are like all the Trojans, remember they didn't go back to Troy. Mm-hmm. So they're all camped around the Achaean ships. A thousand fires, right? are driving them mad. And here's Achilles, and what's he doing? He's playing a liar, just delighting his little heart, singing about brave deeds and things like this. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting that that they set him up to be playing an instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and typically instruments at this time period, right, is are are for festivals or for feasting. Like this is uh, uh, the, the, what the god of Apollo, you know, is is the sun mm-hmm. god, but also he's. Uh, that of reason and shows up with the muses, right? Like right. Feast, feasts and amusements and, and, and things like that. I thought it was just very interesting that they're using him in that way of everything is chaotic and his reason, his reasoning right now is just feast, is, is something for amusement. Yeah, he's delighting his heart. Right. Right. That's, it'd be interesting to, to dig deeper into um, the role of music, maybe where else music pops up in the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good insight. I hadn't thought about that. And also just to, you you played some really good games there, some word games, but to make them more explicit, right? Um, hey, way to go, man. Look at you, just everybody seeing the, the maturation of, of you being able to pick up on my jokes. <laughs> it's not a joke. You had a, you had a <laughs> philosophical insight. It wasn't a joke. Sometimes you make puns and I just steamroll right past them because I'm not... Yeah, I don't know. I just is my I'm, I'm my intellect is, is absorbed in the book, and you try to make a joke, and I just go running right past it. But this was not a joke. You made a good connection via etymology of, um, <coughs> excuse me, of you know where how does the word muse right come into English? And you said music right mm-hmm. to be amused. Um, you know, even a museum right, right is another way it comes in. So anyway, okay, so we get to the it's delegation. The last time you're gonna, uh, Say anything good about what That's I said. That's not you true. You have many <laughs> phenomenal insights. So, there's, okay, so there's a few things that we need to parse out here in this this kind of, because we get three speeches, right? So each character gives a speech. Odysseus gives a speech, then uh, Phoenix will give a speech, mm-hmm. and then um, Ajax will give a, a very small kind of comment. So maybe the first thing we need to do here, well, let's follow the guide. So let's talk about who is Phoenix. Okay. That might be the best because he's... If I remember, I, I mean, going by memory, I don't think we've been introduced to him before. Mm-mm. So who's Phoenix? So let me maybe just have a yeah, strong re, a strong recourse to our guide. 
Yes. To make sure Which I get a story can, right. You can find on our website. Go check that out. And uh, all of all of the guides for all the books you can find uh, via our website. Correct. And what's our website? It is thegreatbookspodcast.com. Okay, very good. So Phoenix is an, an Achaean, uh, was charged by Peleus, Achilles', Achilles father, to train Achilles in war and rhetoric. So there's, there's, there's already this deep tethering between them. Regarding his own background, Phoenix tells the story of sleeping with his father's concubine at his mother's request. And his, I know, it's a charming story, right? So th- this is, it has a wonderful line in there, right? About like, get, we need to get the concubine's taste for old men away. So can you it's please go sleep with her? Right. It's a trap. Yeah, don't do this. So uh, anyway, his father finds out, <coughs> excuse me, his father finds out and Phoenix runs away from home and Peleus welcomes him into his home mm-hmm. as his son. Right, so this is this is a runaway. Phoenix is a runaway, and I, I think we could parse some things out here because I I think all the narratives they try and give to Achilles, they're all um, molded right rhetorically, so Achilles sees something empathetic in them that's supposed to get him to move. So think about that. Mm, so just okay. just kind of, and this is more of a raw thought. So I it certainly can be more uh, refined. I guess I think I'm mixing metaphors. Um, you used to talk about stones being raw, don't you? Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. I so. think so. Okay. Amused. So, <laughs> well, th- th- I think that the point I'm, I'm making here with uh, each speech tries to play to Achilles somehow. Right. We can't just like blindly go past them. So even Phoenix, right, his, notice his own history. So at first you're like, oh, okay, so this guy is like his tutor, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's a tutor that Achilles' his father gave to him, X, Y, and Z. Okay. But even his backstory, okay, so let me get this right. So Phoenix is having an issue about a concubine with his superior. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Right? Achilles right. is having a problem with about Briseis, the concubine, with right. Agamemnon. So even like in this, right, there's like these little lures for Achilles to see himself in this story, right? To see himself in the speakers. So... Let's see here. So Phoenix actually makes a bunch of, uh, he kind of, he, he leans heavily into his relationship with Achilles to try and get Achilles to act. So he claims to Achilles, like, I made you what you are, strong as the gods. I love, I loved you from the heart, right? That's at a line 587. He expresses his love for Achilles as a man who knew he'd never have his own son. In fact, he leverages this into an argument stating, I made you my son. I tried. So someday you might fight disaster off my back. Right. So it's like this, almost this quasi father son relationship. Like, listen, I tutored you in war and rhetoric. I made you who you are. Now I need you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he then gives an explanation of the prayers of Zeus, which I thought was really interesting because um, they're personified. So we've seen this sometimes like strife was personified as a goddess, right. um, <clears throat> uh, route was another one. Uh, so now we get prayers, that prayers themselves are personified, that they're, they're, the prayers to Zeus are a thing, right? And actually they, they trail after and try and heal the wounds of mankind, right? Which I thought was kind of a beautiful, uh, beautiful image. That's at, um, um, let's see, I don't know where that is, I lost that one. The explicit appeal um, to the family and then to the gods, I think is is meaning to invite a comparison here between Achilles and Hector. So if you remember when Hector goes back to Troy, mm-hmm. right, we saw like, hey, this is actually a picture of his piety. Piety really, in a thick sense, in an ancient sense, being my gratitude, right? The pious person, right, the pious heart is a grateful heart, mm-hmm. right? I, I was um, actually worked that into my homily the other day. I worked the Iliad into oh, my homily. Wait, yeah, the rector of the cathedral asked me if I'd give the homily for our like uh, annual appeal. And I figured everyone did not want to hear another like, mm-hmm. here's the ministries we have and here's the, you know, whatever we have. So I gave uh, a homily that... Bro, in- I need your help with the communications department. <laughs> like, you should have said like, right. the communications department. Right, sorry. So I was like, I don't want to think they want to hear this. So I actually gave a homily um, that went into gratitude by actually talking about the Iliad in about piety. And the pious heart is a grateful heart, right? Uh, it's probably the only diocesan appeal campaign that's been based off the Iliad, Iliad. right? But we're trying to just keep things fresh. The, the cathedral. Is, they're not asking you next year. That's right. <laughs> that's a, That was my first and last <laughs> homily on the appeal. So yeah, but we're. Uh, I often bring the great books into uh, my homilies, and some of them are published on the Alcuin Institute. So yes, um, you can have recourse to that. 
But if you remember when Hector went back to Troy, right, we saw this kind of three, <coughs> excuse me, we saw By this way, kind that's of. that's alkalineinstitute.org. Is we it? Just, yeah, well, we just said like, it's a, you can go to the Alkaline Institute and like, right. give them a way to get there. Very good. Alkalineinstitute.org. Um, Theological Institute for the Diocese of Tulsa. So when Hector goes, right, there's this threefold piety. He, he's pious towards the gods. He's grateful for the gods. Mm-hmm. We even see him going back for a sacrifice. Um, he's pious towards the polis, right, the city-state, right. to Troy. And then he's pious family. towards his family. So I actually think in certain ways you're seeing an inversion here with Achilles, right? So Phoenix is trying to make these arguments that are really one out of gra- like gratitude and piety of like, listen, I'm basically your family, right? I raised you. You should have like a certain gratitude towards me. I did not catch this the first time. But does that make sense? Like he's, I think yes. it's an argument of piety of like, hey, you should be grateful. Okay. And gratitude always moves you to act, mm-hmm. right? So like, you know, we're grateful towards God. And so like we give like a tithe, right? This mm-hmm. Hence why I try to use it in my homily, right? So, <coughs> but I think this... That's I, a good I, point, yeah. Appeal to family to, to get him to move. Yeah, so I think Phoenix, like, tries to do this. Um, Phoenix also gives him the ancient story of Maliger, right? Uh, or Maliger. And that one is such a comical parallel to Achilles that um, I think it's the Fagel's Notes or whatever that basically... Everyone just believes that this is a complete Homeric invention, right? I mean, it's so comically, like, basically all he does is reverse. Um, instead of Achilles being the the group that's assaulting the city, yeah. it's the guy who's supposed to be defending the city, and he won't go fight, you know, for glory. Um, and he won't fight, he won't fight. Everyone's trying to, you know, argue with him. He won't do it, he won't do it. And he waits so long that they're at such desperate straits that he does barely save the city, but he gets none of the gifts, none of the glory, like he waited too long. Mm-hmm. It's just like a really clear, right, rhetorical device trying to get Achilles to do something. <laughs> and I even read uh, in the Greek, um, isn't like his wife's name, Maliger, like isn't his wife's name like Cleopatra? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, let's see, where does he, yeah, Phoenix gives this prayers. He gives the story of Maliger that starts, um, I think a little bit above, yes, 650. Um, yeah, Cleopatra, Mm -hmm. Cleopatra. That's at like six, a little bit before 680. So there's a theory here that Cleopatra is a, is a word game. She's a pun because if you take the, the Cleo and Patra and basically you, you break the word in half and you switch them, it becomes quite close to Patroclus, right? How the sounds work out, right? So you have the C sound at the beginning and Patra at the end, but if you reverse them and switch their places, right, you have all the same sounds as Patroclus. And so Patroclus ends up being the one that we see and that we need to get into who he is. He's the one that's supposed to be advising Achilles, right? So this almost like painfully obvious... You know what happens whenever you listen to the Beatles vinyl record going backwards. <laughs> no, I don't, Adam. Why don't you share it with us? <laughs> this sounds germane. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I'm just joking. Okay. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, I also thought it was funny that uh, we're talking about a girl with uh, lovely ankles. Like, here she makes a Marpesa. I don't know how you pronounce her name. I don't know. Uh, uh all the Marpe said, the girl with lovely ankles. This is like you got to be known for something. You got to be known for something. Here you are, one of the oldest texts right. ever in the history of man, and you get pegged for the one with the lovely ankles. But you know what? People remember you. Yeah, I mean, so she has her immortal glory. Could be worse, right? It could be worse. Could be worse. You could be the ugliest man that came to Troy. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. that one, <laughs> like what was that guy's name at the beginning? Yeah, what was his name? I can't remember. I don't remember. Or we're just seeing the next the ugliest yeah the, the ugliest man who ever came to Troy we could get that um, you could be that dude and then even next book we get um, um, we'll get in the marauding you know when they go out there the Trojan guy they're like uh, I can't remember what they say it, like he's real ugly but he's fast right yeah. it's like <laughs> right, right. thanks for adding that in mm-hmm. so anyway I, just to kind of round off Phoenix um, you know Achilles doesn't go for it right Achilles says listen. He basically says, listen, all you're doing is trying to curry favor with Agamemnon, right? That's at 748, right? That's, that's all you're doing. And he, he basically rejects his entire argument. However, he then invites Phoenix to spend the night with him, 
and tells him like, Hey, we'll, we'll discern, we'll discern moving, you know, going home in the morning. You stay home with me mm-hmm. and maybe in the morning we'll go home back to Peleus. Right. So there's the beginning of all this just for, cause we're, we're tracking sacrifice as well. He starts mm-hmm. out with serving them meat and has Patroclus cut the first cuts into the fire <coughs> as a sacrifice. Right. What happens at the end? Uh, they finish the lift, lifting the two, two handed cup and pour out, pour it out to the gods. Uh, with Odysseus in the lead, uh, I just I really appreciate that. Yeah, they have a strong natural religion, mm-hmm. right? Or I should say, a natural virtue of religion, mm-hmm. right? Because they do have like this kind of revealed text, kind of um, this oral tradition that's being passed down. Right. So okay, so we've kind of pulled the Phoenix thread, right? Right. Who's Phoenix? So let's go back, and you give us a good segue into who is Patroclus. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is another one that we can have kind of recourse to the guide about. But Patroclus, um, so he is a shockingly similar uh, situation to Phoenix, but it's really not parsed out oh, here. Sorry. You have to know a little bit like of the backstory. Mm-hmm. Phoenix tells his story. Patroclus really doesn't. So Homer presents Patroclus as the great friend, right, of Achilles, a man like a god, right. Similar to Phoenix, Patroclus was a runaway who found refuge in the house of Peleus, Achilles' father. Peleus assigned Patroclus as the personal attendant to the slightly younger Achilles. And his subservient relation between great friends is notable in Book 9. And there's a lot of references uh, in the guide. But we saw this, right, in what you just mentioned. I think one thing that stood out to me when I read this one is, um, yeah, they're great friends, but Achilles is giving him orders. Right. right? Patroclus do this, Patroclus do that, right. you know, etc. Yeah, so he's, he is a servant, Um, and there's even a part too, where, um, let's see here or wait, no, I think I'm jumping ahead. There's another part where Patroclus, yeah, no, I want to jump. That's jumping ahead. I don't want to do that. So let's talk about the relationship between Patroclus and Achilles. Okay. Which, you know, if some of our listeners are ignorant of these concepts, then God bless you. But I think we have to bring them up. So, um, if you read Homer and you're just reading Homer, um, it might shock you that there are a large contingency of people who hold that Achilles and Patroclus are homosexual lovers, mm-hmm. right? So that's what they are. I don't think they actually deny that he's like the attendant. I don't. I don't think that's part of it. But like they like if you, there's not even like modern. Well, actually, we had a mutual friend, which we won't name out of his general shame. But um, you know that picked up like we were reading the Iliad, and he's like, "Hey, look, I I got this modern book about Achilles," and I was like, "Oh, that!" Like immediately, I'm just like, "This is gonna be garbage." Like, there's no way this won't be garbage because there's some fad right now that like goes back and takes all the myths but makes them modern, and that's always gonna be a terrible idea. And I'm like, "Oh, well, who who like what's going?" What's like, well, it's. Uh, uh, Patroclus is playing a big role and, um, you know, I'm just thinking to myself like, yeah, there, there's no way that you didn't just pick up like a homosexual romance novel. Right. Um, and then, yeah, he got to the end. He was like, yeah, I couldn't finish it. It was whatever. So, <clears throat> I just, so he found out the hard way, but I think, I mean, let's take the critique seriously or let's take the, the idea serious. Right. Cause I mean, this is very common. I mean, um, Plato, even talks about it, right? right. So I think one of the things that I, I, I think we should dispel is it's too easy to say, you know what, there's no Homeric evidence for this. And I agree with that. Like Homer does not present this. Actually, Homer does not really present homosexuality in the Iliad. Mm-hmm. However, you also can't say like, well, you know what this is? This is just like a modern, you know, LGBT, like invention. Re, like invention. Yeah, they're just reading this. And they're like, hey, look, because, you know, one of the things that's unfortunate about our age is like, we just we just can't understand good friend, like intimate friendships that's between right. men anymore. And I know this has been a big, um, you know, ministry of yours with the Catholic Man Show and et cetera, of, of building up true fraternity. Uh, but this reminds me of like, you know, people that just cannot get past like Sam and Frodo and Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is that because they have no true friends, all that, that philia is always interpreted as eros, right? That right. That's philia being the, like Philadelphia, right? Like the brotherly love, mm-hmm. right? The fraternal love. <coughs> and then eros um, being more of an erotic love. Ascension. Yeah, eros is... Like, almost like it's ascending. Like ascend. <laughs> like in a podcasting. Anyway, so we'll get there um, to kind of the thicker sense of ascend and what that means and but eros i think at least in a flat surface level way right can be you know it's where we get the word erotic right right? and so uh the sexual love Mm -hmm. um so just as like an introductory concept we can just kind of leave it there 
is uh, because of that, like there's just so many whose imaginations now can't actually contain or even entertain like a intimate, fraternal, non-erotic male friendship. Right. Right. But I, but I mean, in defense, I guess, which is another thing to say of this idea, you can't just chunk this out as a modern, right. you know, LGBT steel read. Man, steel manning the idea would be, listen, Plato brought this up. Like Socrates is talking about this. Correct. So yeah, steel man, um, it's a phrase you use that I appreciate, right? So the opposite of a straw man, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, I think one of the, and we talk about this in the guide, and I kind of go into greater detail there for those who you know might be interested in actually getting into this. But I think what's confusing here is you have to keep in mind. So Homer was what at like eight fifty BC. Mm-hmm. Well, the classical era. <coughs> excuse me. So you're talking like four hundred years, roughly later, right? By the classical era, um, you know, in our heads we kind of collapse this all into the ancient Greeks. But we have to realize how much time, like. You know, Troy is what, 1250 BC is probably when it actually happened, 1150, somewhere in there, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have Homer at 850, and then you have the classical era around, say, like 400 BC, then going into Plato and Socrates and stuff in like the 300s. These are actually very significant periods of time in which cultures shift, right? right? And one of the things that does shift is like, it is correct that the classical era recontextualizes the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus as homosexual. And actually, there's been a huge homosexual movement inside uh, ancient Greece by the time you get to the classical era. I mean, homosexuality and particularly uh, pederasty, right? An older man with a younger man, um, or boy, I should say, not to... Um, Scandalize people. Well, not not to... I don't want to put it lightly or try and hide the ball here, I guess, but right, like what are we actually talking about? Right. Um, becomes basically very prominent in the aristocratic class of Greeks. Uh, you see in Athens, you see in Sparta, etc. So, I mean, they have plays. They have plays of Achilles and Patroclus being homosexual lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Symposium, which is a, is a dialogue by Plato, or, yes, by Plato, um, in which Socrates is dialoguing and giving these speeches on what is eros, right? What is erotic love? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a wonderful text, and I, I I can't wait to get into it, you know, in this podcast in 16 years or whatever our reading schedule <laughs> allows us to, to get there. Um, but Agathon, who is, well, just one of the main characters, you know, he gives his um, speech on Eros, and if I recall correctly, he talks about Achilles and Patroclus being homosexual, mm-hmm. right, and being these lovers. So I, it's not something that you can just jettison as some kind of modern invention, you right. know, X, Y, and Z. But... I think very clearly what you can say, um, and there's a famous, um, I mean, this was an, this was a problem even for the classical era insofar as like, I found this wonderful text of the first librarian of the library of Alexandria. Okay. So just, we're talking very prominent and this is, um, circa 330 BC is a Homeric scholar. So this, this is kind of like, we think of like, we have Homeric scholars today. The classical era had, Homeric scholars, right? Because you wow. think that's ancient history. That's 400 right. years, years for them, right? Yeah. Think about what was Ima- happening. Imagine what they're going to say about us in 2423. About right. us in great <clears throat> When we saved civilization yes. through our podcast. So even in there, <coughs> with his work at the uh, Library of Alexandria, like he's noting and actually somewhat fighting against, um, or at least calling them out, these classical, I mean, he wouldn't use that language, right? That's us in retrospect, but these classical uh, interjections into the text that Homer does not have, mm-hmm. right? Homer doesn't present them as homosexuals. So, you know, I think that, you know, and sometimes on the other side, you know, I've seen some of the LGBT commentary that talks about like trying to not see Achilles and Patroclus like that is some kind of um, hiding of the past, some kind of like, you know, being unwilling to take things seriously, you know, that this relationship existed. And I, I think that I think that really is just a ahistorical view. And there's no reason, I mean, if that was in the text, it was in the text. I mean, when we get to the classical Greeks, we're going to have to deal with a lot of that because right. it is prominent in the text. It's prominent in Plato's dialogues. Like, right. we're going to have to work through that. What do we, what do we you know, what does Plato think about that, right? Mm-hmm. How does this lead into Aristotle, right? What did the early church fathers think looking back on that, right? So, I mean, that's not a conversation to step away from. I think it's one to be very rational about. But as we look with Homer, qua Homer, there's just nothing here to actually state that. It's a later interjection on the text. So if you want to do a deeper dive on that, because for some people that's a huge bailiwick and, and you know, how that works, look at the guide. 
I have lots of footnotes in there for resources that you can come and look at. Um, and that's something we're going to have to take up <coughs> when we get into the dialogues is what happened to Greek culture between At Homer. Yeah. What happened in Greek culture between Homer and say Plato, right? Cause mm-hmm. there are some things that are very prominent, the aristocratic kind of homosexuality and pederasty for one, mm-hmm. um, the treatment of women actually is another one that seemed to be very disparate between the Homeric age and the classical age. And we're going to have to kind of look and say, Hey, what, what happened here? And because then what is it that Plato's actually facing, right? What is he actually trying to comment on? That's, so that'll be fun. Yeah. So we will all in good time. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's who Patroclus is, right? And so he's, he's supposed to be uh, this attendant, right? Of, mm-hmm. of Achilles. Uh, and he is his, his great friend. So, Odysseus, let's talk about Odysseus' speech. So we've gotten a little bit out of order here, but I think we're just kind of pulling these threads. Odysseus basically gives Agamemnon's speech with one giant caveat. By the way, here's all the things you get. I'm not going to mention the whole you having to bow before him thing. Exactly. So uh, Odysseus very wisely, right, the man of tactics, leaves out. By the way, Agamemnon said you still have to acknowledge him as, you know, the elder-born... Um, the greater man. And this is, again, <clears throat> a very Homeric um, device, right? What did they? What did the messenger not repeat of the person that, or what did they add, or what's their gloss, right. or what's their commentary? So that's one thing with Odysseus, is just simply like he doesn't include that part. Um, you know, and then we get... So, well, then we get Phoenix, and then you get Ajax, who, you know, basically just tells Odysseus to listen, man, like, what are you, like, you should be ashamed of yourself, right? Like, what, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. So if you look all the way back to, um, yeah, Ajax, he's very short. He's around 780. His speech is short, I should say. Because he's a right? tall man. He's a he big man. Him. He's a very big man. Ajax the great. The great right? Ajax. He just says, listen, the gods have planted a cruel, relentless fury in your chest, all for a girl, just one, and here we offer you seven, because that was one of, right, one, one of the, the treasures. Right. Outstanding beauties um, and a treasure trove besides. Achilles, put some human kindness in your heart. Show respect for your own house. So Ajax kind of just gives him this very blunt um, in your face, like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think <coughs> even in our own small group, there were different ways of reading Ajax. I found Ajax to be somewhat flat because um, it's not clear to me that Ajax really understands the situation because it's not all for a girl. Right? I mean, not to be vulgar, but like, Achilles just told Agamemnon, like, listen, go enjoy uh, Briseis to the hilt. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Right? I mean, the Briseis is simply just a proxy for Achilles' wounded sure. arm. Like, you know. In defense of Ajax, though, was he there for all of that? Well, I mean, he, how I mean, much of, of, of he's listened to the other speeches, um, which I think should be, I think you should be able to intuit. Uh, I mean, I'm open for defenses of him. I just kind of found it a little flat and Ajax doesn't, I mean, I could be wrong, but so far in the text, like Ajax doesn't seem to be the one to speak up and give speeches or give right. tactics well, or give a lot of rhetoric. Right. He's not, he's more known as the bronze instead of the brains. Yeah. I mean, he's a giant man with a giant shield and, and actually one of my favorite characters, I don't mean to disparage him at all. Um, but he just, you know, but I think then some people really liked it because it was just very short to the point. Blunt. Hey, show respect for your own house. Right. So right. do you think that each one of these moved Achilles to the point of, you, know, you were just talking about how like gratitude moves somebody. Right. Uh, emotion can move somebody. Do you feel like that, you know, he goes through Phoenix and then he listens to Odysseus and then Ajax really kind of bluntly is like, man, dude, man up. What, what, what's your deal? Like, you right. know, get with it. Do you think that that moved Achilles to go ahead and say, like, okay, fine, let's go fight? Or do you think that his his thought was already determined? That's a, a wonderful question. I think, well, if you look at, so again, someone having recourse to the guide, because we kind of summarize this in one spot. But I think, so if you took the position of the embassy is having an effect on Achilles. So let's say overall it fails, right? He does not, he does not decide to come back. Right, they have to go back to Agamemnon and say, listen, Achilles is not coming to the war. Overall, you could say it failed. There's some pushback on that and says, hey, but you actually moved him, right? He His position shifts 
and gets better technically with each speaker. So if you look, you're going to have recourse to our guide. So to Odysseus, he states he's sailing home in the morning. Mm-hmm. And everyone else should as well. So he actually kind of has this like Agamemnon spirit of like everyone right. just sail home, right? So I'm sailing home. We're done. You should sail home. We are done with Troy. Right. It's over. Um, but then the Phoenix, he states, well, actually, remember, remember, but Phoenix, he says, hey, you sleep with me tonight, yeah, right? Let's talk about it, and maybe we'll leave in the morning, and we'll decide in the morning. Okay, right. so now we've gotten from we're all gonna sail away to well, let's decide in the morning. Then mm-hmm. Ajax says, hey, you know, you're basically embarrassing your house, right? Mm-hmm. And he tells Ajax that he will not fight again until the Argives are being slaughtered and their ships are on fire. So at this point, there is no concept of sailing home with Ajax, right? Right. It's just like, you know what? I'm going to join the fight again when you guys are all getting slaughtered. And that comes all the way up to my ships, right? The Myrmidon, right? Right. His like little tribe that he has. And so I think that (coughs) one one group here would say, um, hey, they they moved him, right? So he was going to sail home. And then he got closer and maybe aside, and then you know Ajax might have made him angry and said, you know, the, the pretense of sailing home went away, and you know I'm gonna I'm just gonna wait until you guys are at basically there's such a dim hope, then maybe I'll come out. Right. right? Um, I think it's a fair view. I think it's a perfectly fair view. I, I tend to think though, just because of where his rage is, I tend to think that what the three speakers did is they just scratched off the veneer. I don't think he has any, I, I think he has zero intention of sailing home at all. I think the sailing home, you sail home, I think it's all a rhetorical device. <clears throat> I think he has no intention of sailing home. I think all they did is spur his rage in which their own countrymen is telling them, I will not join you in fighting until you all are being slaughtered by the ships, right? I, I, I just don't, and I think one of the things I would point to here is one of the most important passages and one of the most famous passages actually in the entire Iliad, which let's see, help me find it. It's the two, it's the narrative of the two fates, right? So he tells, uh, that is at 500 or so. It starts a little bit before 500. So this is Achilles speaking. And he says that his mother, that would be Thetis, right? Um, said that he has two fates, right? Mm-hmm. that bear on him. And this is a big thing because we've been tracking fate. We've been tracking, is there a nameless fate? Is it Zeus's will, etc.? And this is really unique. No one has two fates, right? I mean, think about Hector, right? I can't be right. taken before my time, right? Right. So now we get this unique scenario where it's like, no, Achilles, you have two fates. Basically, you know, he says, if I hold out here and I lay siege to Troy, my journey home is gone, but my glory never dies. Right. If I voyage back to the fatherland I love, my pride, my glory dies. True, but the life that's left to me will be long. The stroke of death will not come quickly. Right. And so I think <coughs> how I would read this is, right, when he talks about the rage that's still heaving in his heart, etc., he is he wa- he has made a decision to stay, right? He's going to have the immortal glory. That's what he wants. But he knows if he stays, because I think this helps make sense of things, because if, if he has chosen to stay, which means he's going to have this immortal glory in the siege of Troy, but he will die, right? Mm-hmm. Then that also shows you why he doesn't care about the gifts. That's why he doesn't care about Agamemnon's gifts. Does that make sense? Because he knows he's going to die. It doesn't. It's not about the gifts. It's not about Briseis. It's also not about the seven, you know, women, or I'm the daughter, you know, I'll be the mm-hmm. son-in-law of Agamemnon, or I get the citadels, or all. none of it matters because mm-hmm. he knows he will die, right? Mm-hmm. The siege of Troy will take his life. But what he really seeks, and, then, and speaking of Plato's Symposium, this is a big part of this, right? What he really seeks is the immortal glory, right? His name will be known for forever. Here we are talking about his decision, right? Um, but if he goes back <coughs> and sails home, Mm-hmm. Right then, he he lives a long life, but then no one will know, no who, one he knows is, who he is. Right, and I think that he is my my instinct here. I mean, it's not a hill I would die on. Is that he's made this choice, right? And this is this kind of gives an insight into why the gifts don't matter. Like the embassy doesn't really matter. Like he is just waiting until he thinks that now's the time. that now is the time. That's what he's waiting for, and nothing else matters other than that. He he is he knows he's a dead man walking. Hmm. And nothing else matters other than that. So, I mean, you know, 
I like that insight. I would have pushed back on you really hard uh, until you until you brought up like, well, he realizes already what his fate is, and so mm-hmm. none of the the bounty that he's going to get uh, means anything because he already knows he's going to die. Right. It's like, ah, well, okay, fine, checkmate. I mean, that's how I read it. I mean, I think, um, you know, when we had our small group, I think some of the other guys were like, no, this really moved him. Like, he's still in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I wouldn't, rec- I wouldn't preclude that. I mean, in order to that. take that, that, that line of thought, I guess you have, to, you have to say that he is internally struggling with going back home and living right. with his name. He, basically, he actually is truly undecided. Right. Right, he's still being shifted, right. and he really can't do this. But I think the, <coughs> the hatred that he currently shows for Agamemnon Right, that's just heaving in his heart. Um, I think kind of shows that he he knows where where he lands. Well, and remember how book one opens up. Yeah. How how Homer like starts well, this whole here, thing. Read, read it again. Rage, goddess goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous and doomed. The cost of the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the de- to the house of death. So many sturdy souls, great fighter souls, but made their bodies carry on uh, feast for the dogs and birds. Keeps going. But mm-hmm. I mean, so like we understand at the very beginning, this whole book is about his rage. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, it's about the rage and, of Achilles. And his, and his ending. Like, <laughs> and uh, the, it would be kind of a, a, a boring rage if his rage is to go back home and he's, ra- <laughs> he's raged about his. Just the pout. His, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I think um, I like I like that. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm open to both views. You know, what, is he still being moved? Is he is do he dis- really? Do you disagree with us? Uh, tag us on Twitter or uh, let us know. We'd be interested right. in hearing your thoughts. Tweet angry things at Deacon Garlic on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So that's what Twitter's for. Exactly. So then, just to end, um, your boy Diomedes pops up at the end, mm-hmm. right? Eight fifty. So right here at the end of the text. It's it's um, so what's happened? They come back. They said, "Hey, he's not going to join us." They're all struck dumb, and Diomedes speaks up and basically says, "Hey, you've only plunged him deeper into his pride. Mm-hmm. He's a proud man, right? He will fight again in his own good time, right? What a prediction, right?" <clears throat> and then he says, <clears throat> "By the way, Agamemnon, you should fight on the front lines tomorrow, right? We have a leader. You're our leader. Right. You go and lead us and lead on the front lines tomorrow." And so the whole this whole book, book nine, is is bookended by Diomedes and his council, right? So the first one is, listen, you can sail home, but I'm going to stay here and fight at Troy. And then when at the end, it's, hey, Agamemnon, why don't you lead us, right. right? You be our leader. You fight on the front lines. And then everyone goes from being struck dumb to shouting in ascent. Mm-hmm. And the book ends with them all, um, I think actually they... Sacrificing to the gods. Right, they have a good sacrifice. That's what I was looking at to, to pick up the theme that you're noting. And... Then they end, and they take the gift of sleep. Yeah. So we've uh, had a, a lot of feedback asking how they can help uh, ascend the Great Books podcast, and I think one of the uh, a great way you can do that. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we got into this game to get rich and famous, right? We're, <laughs> that's why we're doing this, is because we all want to be rich and famous. Exactly. Uh, but I, the best way I think you could help us out is one by by rating and reviewing the podcast to help us, uh, you know, for it to organically be be grow, growing, but then also to just uh, tell a friend. Right. You know, to, 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 to get together with buddies, uh, open up Homer, uh, start reading the Iliad and go through it with us. And start a small group. Right. I had, I had someone reach out to me yesterday, actually, that was saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start reading the Iliad. Because obviously, like, by the way, like if you're enjoying and like listening to this, like, <clears throat> there's nothing stopping you. Should you should check out the book. Right. She <laughs> 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 actually checked out Homer. Um, but, but one thing I was going to say is that, you know, if you're tracking along with us, you're like, hey, I really enjoy this. You know, there's nothing wrong with then <clears throat> spending some time, getting a small group together, and starting back at the beginning with them. Right. Right. And tracking through with, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good way. The Iliad leads to multiple readings. You know, a lot of the insights that we have are simply from actually reading the text multiple times. So the first time you're really trying to track, track, Major the movements, story. the story, like yeah, the you're, you're getting used to Homer and all this stuff. And so, you know, it's not until you second, third read, you, the mind has relaxed a bit to be able to pick up the smaller details or like, hey, why does he say that, et cetera. And so it's one thing I've done in my own life, you know, several years ago, probably close to a decade now, I put myself on a great book's reading list. Mm-hmm. And I literally spent um, two years just reading Plato's Republic. I read it all myself. 
mm-hmm. and took a bunch of notes, et cetera, finished it, turned around, asked a bunch of guys, hey, would you like to read this with me? And then spent the next 10 months, we read one book a month, the next 10 months reading it as a small group. And that's how you make your friends think that you're really smart. That's what, that's the you, entire you goal. Let, yeah, you do not right. let them know that you've already read this. This is my first time reading Actually, this. what you should do is start a small group and don't tell them about the podcast. <laughs> right. I mean, Until the very end, it's like, right. by the way, guys, all of these ideas I got right. from Adam. Well, I kind of, you know, there's two ways of looking at the embassy, blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, I actually think this homosexual thing is, uh, you know, from the classical era. Did you know that the librarian at uh, Alexandria said, <laughs> just like totally just riff it. But anyway, don't do that, actually. Share the podcast, share the guide. Um, we like learning together with everyone, the pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful. That's right. So uh, we'll be back next week talking about book 10, a shorter book. Shorter book. All right. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.